0: I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, And when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch!
1: Here's a Japanese sandman sneaking on with a you
0: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're talking about the 1982 horror science fiction classic, The Thing.
1: But before we get into all that, what is going on? As we've mentioned on previous uh, news segments, Paul and I went down to the Tabletop Gaming Live event at Alexandria Palace and we did a seminar there with with Mike Mason called Calling Cthulhu.
0: Yeah, and we'll be putting that out as a bonus episode uh, sometime soon, so keep an eye on the feeds.
1: And of course the other big thing that's going on for us at the moment is we're putting the finishing touches to issue four of The Blasphemous Tome. This will be out, we hope, in uh, early December, winging its way to wherever our listeners or or backers can be found. Across the gore winds.
0: And if you want to get your hands on a copy,
1: then just back us on Patreon by the end of the year. There is a post on BlasphemousTomes.com that tells you all about it. We shall link to it from the show notes.
0: And now to our main topic, The Thing.
1: The Thing came out in 1982, and it was directed by John Carpenter, who up to that stage had made a career for himself by directing a lot of low-budget, independently made science fiction and horror films, such as uh, Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York. He'd certainly built up a reputation for himself, but this was his first studio picture, his first one with a real budget. This was the
0: first film that Carpenter didn't write himself, but also the first that he didn't score. The music, in fact, is by Ennio Morricone, although Carpenter did some uncredited music work as well. I think, though, from remember watching the documentary, Morricone tried to base
2: a lot of his style for the soundtrack for this film on Carpenter's previous works. Mm. So lots of synthesizer, lots of long, lingering menace. Although, ironically, he was nominated for a Razzie for the worst soundtrack of the year.
1: Yeah, which is bizarre. It certainly does the job that you want uh, the soundtrack in a film like that to do. It sets the atmosphere, it builds tension. I don't find it quite as catchy as some of Carpenter's own scores, which I do actually listen to for pleasure fairly regularly. But, yeah, it's it's a strong score. Carpenter's much turned his career towards music in recent
2: years. Uh, like He's done the Anthology Collection, which has been a revamped... Uh, collection of his film scores up to a certain point and then lost themes volume one and two
0: which i have regularly playing in the car the film is based on a 1938 novella who goes there by john w campbell jr originally published under the name don a stewart there was also a novelization of the film written by alan dean foster doesn't the novelization follow, adding more confusion to this, the more
2: original version of Lancaster's script that doesn't yeah. bear much resemblance to what they finally filmed?
1: This was something that happened an awful lot in the early 80s. I don't know if it still happens quite as much now. That When you got these these fairly major science fiction or horror films that came out, there would be novelization tie-ins that would, as, as you say, be timed to come out with the film so people would base it on the script. You'd quite often get extra scenes in there which had been cut from the version of the film that came out or, or alternate versions and, uh, you know, sometimes very different endings.
2: And Alan Dean Foster seemed to write most of them. Yeah. He, must... he was the
0: Kevin J. Anderson of his day.
1: Yes, yes, <laughs> very much so.
0: Who Goes There had been adapted before as The Thing from Another World in 1951. This was a fairly free adaptation, keeping a similar kind of setting and a monster from under the ice, but without the body
1: snatching and paranoia.
2: But added vampire carrot! Indeed. <laughs>
1: It's a long time since I've seen The Thing from Another World. You watched it recently, didn't oh, you? Oh, yeah,
2: I've watched that film countless times. Uh, really? So was, Why do you do this to yourself? You know, it was one of my mum's favourites. Right, okay. So, yeah, we we got it, uh, we taped it off TV and then we got the DVD when it came out as well. No, I, I love it. It's wonderfully campy and shit. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, not, yeah. not according to Roger
1: Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of elements that it kept from the novella that were perhaps more faithful to the novella <laughs> than John Carpenter adaptation. Ele- electrocuting it for
2: one
0: thing.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. And the fact that, you know, there were a lot more people in the base. I mean, there's a huge cast in the thing from another world. But in the thing, they cut it down to uh, 12. Because mm-hmm. uh,
2: I've been reading who goes there. I'm reading it through and thinking, oh, yeah, that bit's in one version, that bit's in yeah. a
0: different one. And it's kind of scattered throughout, throughout both of them, really. While it has become a cult favourite, The Thing was a box office failure at the time and received mixed reviews, much like Blade Runner, which opened on the same day. It received a second life on home video, building up a following over the years. Bloody E.T.
1: Yeah, both of these were released two weeks after E.T. came out, and E.T. dominated the box office. And, you know, obviously both Blade Runner and The Thing are fairly serious films in tone. The Thing was actually a commercial failure. The reviews it got, I mean, you know, you mentioned Roger Ebert in passing, Mm -hmm. and Ebert, he didn't quite savage it. He gave it, I, I think, you know, two and a half stars out of five. You know, where he, he praised The Thing from Another World as being a better adaptation. Yeah, and, and the thing that he seemed to object to was the fact that it was quite a gruesome film. It's kind of difficult to remember that now looking back at it because, I mean, maybe it doesn't seem tame by modern standards. But for a big studio film to come out that had that degree of gore and visceral nastiness and, and and weird horrible monsters, was really quite unusual.
2: Groundbreaking special effects, practical
1: effects. Apparently, a lot of the audiences at the time found it quite repellent. I mean, personally, I, I saw it at the cinema when it came out, and I I, I didn't, but I, I was a
0: weird kid. It was followed by a prequel in twenty eleven, also confusingly called. The Thing. Is it just and, called The Thing? Yeah, do, you, yeah. do you know why they just called it that? I don't know. Because they couldn't think of another decent subtitle for it. Oh, okay. That was. I it. mean, I guess it's kind of... I mean, from what I've heard, I haven't actually seen this. It's just a reboot, isn't it, of The no. Thing? No, no, no,
1: it, no, it's a prequel.
2: Although it does fuck up the continuity in, um, in one major way. In that, the, the ship comes down, burns a hole through the ice, and then lodges itself under the glacier. Right. And the reason why it's all exposed to the air that you then see in the second film, the, the carpenter film, is that the engines have started and melted all the ice above it. So what happens in the version of the, the Carpenter's thing where they detonate it with thermite and blow it up out of the ice and that's how they've destroyed the ship in the first place? Hmm. Yeah, there is a big continuity error, despite them putting the effort in to replicate the fucking brakes and smashes in the glass panels and the windows, all, and things like, and, oh, an axe in the doorway. One person having slipped their wrist. All that's in place,
1: but then they mess up big time on the end. But I think there are bigger problems with the film than that. I mean, we won't spend much time talking about the 2011 film, but I found it just thoroughly forgettable. I mean, yeah, a lot of people attack it because of the special effects because they shot it originally using practical effects much like the, the ones in the Carpenter film, but then redid them all with CGI because someone thought it was a good idea. And, you know, it doesn't look good. But that aside, I think it's just fundamentally a boring film.
2: And also, disappointingly, they use CGI to cover up a whole load of what would have been interesting stuff if they kept it due to the
0: rewrites. Things like the pilot on the ship, they covered with some weird pixel-moving thing. And also adapted into a video game in 2002, a long yeah. time ago. Didn't, didn't Carpenter say that was effectively the canon sequel?
1: Yeah, he did. I mean, we, we might double back and talk about it in context of the ending of the film. But I mean, there, there's a big question mark that's left at the end of the film, which is actually resolved in the video game. And Carpenter did say that, yeah, that, that resolution in the game is canon, as far as he's concerned. Hmm. Get your ass over here!
0: and now a spoiler-filled look at what happens
1: in the thing we open up with a brief scene of a flying saucer hurtling towards earth uh, hitting the atmosphere sparks and fire flying off possibly out of control possibly crashing we then cut to the fairly iconic title which is rendered in the same way as the title on the the 1951 film. They use a fish tank as well? Uh, no, but it is the same logo, mm-hmm. or at least the same font or the same typeface or whatever you want to call it. I was watching the making of documentary and the way they did this, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the fish tank. I mean, it's difficult to remember these days where everything is computer generated that stuff like this had to be created using practical effects. And... The way they did it was they got this fish tank, filled it full of smoke, put lights underneath it so that you had rays of atmospheric, smoky, spooky-looking light. Then they had the title card with the logo on it behind the fish tank. And in between the two, they basically stretched out a big black bin liner. And they set fire to the bin liner so that, you know, the flames would go up and gradually reveal the lit logo behind it. And the overall effect I mean, is absolutely fantastic, but yeah, this, this was a cheap, fairly simple, practical effect that involved a bin bag. You can still see a little
2: bit of the stringy bit of the bin liner left on the T of thing, um, as it's one of the last bits to go up. <laughs> the story then moves to Antarctica in the winter of 1982. A Norwegian helicopter flies low over the landscape chasing a husky. The passenger is trying, desperately and unsuccessfully, to kill it with a rifle and grenades. Because, where guns to fail,
0: grenades are obviously going to work, aren't they? The dog reaches the safety of Outpost 31, an American research base. One of the Norwegians fumbles his throw roll and blows up the helicopter with a grenade. Ha <laughs> ha! The one survivor shouts out a warning to the researchers, but in Norwegian, which none of them speaks. He tries to shoot the dog, but hits Bennings, one of the Americans. Gary, the camp leader, shoots the Norwegian dead out the window with a pistol. Now, I remember Scott saying this a while back, but if they put subtitles in there, or
2: if you understood Norwegian, you've pretty much had the film ruined all yeah. this opening tension with this I
1: did see comments on the internet a while back from people in the Scandinavian countries, because Norwegian is pretty much mutually intelligible if you speak some other Scandinavian languages, basically saying that, yeah, this this became a very different film for them for that reason. Perhaps there's a a bit of a lesson there that if you want to have a twist or a big revelation in a film, perhaps be conscious of, of how you're going to reveal it to some of your audience. I think Carpenter was hoping that not many people in the US spoke Norwegian. So anyway, in order to understand what the hell just happened, three of the researchers, MacReady, Norris and the Doctor, Copper, fly out to the Norwegian base. They find it derelict and fire damaged with all of the occupants dead. Outside in the snow, they discover the burnt remains of some twisted monstrosity with human aspects, including this sort of weird double-melted face. They decide to take these remains back to their own base, as you do, along with some papers and other evidence.
2: After spending the day wandering around the base, the husky is taken to the kennels by Clark, the dog handler. This does not go down well with the other dogs, uh, especially when the new husky grows tentacles and starts to eat them. The howling of the dogs and the cries of the creature attract MacReady's attention and he
0: sets off the fire alarm. The researchers rush to the kennels in time to see the huskies metamorphosizing into an unearthly mix of dog and alien monstrosity. They shoot it and immolate it with a flamethrower. Which yeah, are those flamethrowers the hand. <laughs>
1: yeah. And this is a spectacular sequence, and it's the first time we sort of really see the thing in its monstrous glory. It sort of sets some of the tone that we see. Well, we, we saw a bit of it with the the remains as well, where, I mean, it's not just that they look weird, but they're, they're, they're sort of nasty. I mean, yeah, everyone reacts as if they smell awful, they're dripping with goo and slime. And they mentioned in the commentary or the making of a documentary that the slime all these things are covered with. I I thought it was barbecue sauce from the texture and look of it. But apparently it's something called carbopole, which is this gel that's used in manufacturing and is is apparently a key ingredient to the manufacture of Twinkies. Mm. So, So, you know, every time you're seeing that thing dripping slime, just think of it as dripping uncooked Twinkies.
2: Oh, that classic Ghostbusters line. That's one big Twinkie.
1: I thought you were going to say, he slimed me. <laughs> <laughs> you can just that totally yeah. you <laughs> the two together.
2: The flamethrower idea, I think, comes from uh, a bit in the book, where it's MacReady who uses one of the heaters that's supposed to be designed to heat the aircraft, yeah. to de-ice it, making this a three-foot length of blue flame. Later, Blair, a very unrecognisable Wilford Brimley, without his uh, trademark huge moustache... <laughs> A biologist examines the remains and finds that for all its monstrous aspects, it contains what appear to be normal internal organs. He determines that the creature is able to absorb and imitate other life forms, creating
0: perfect replicas. He is one hell of a biologist to work out that in such a short space of time. <laughs> Videotapes recovered from the Norwegians reveal that they uncovered something large in the ice. MacReady leads a small team to the Norwegian base to investigate further. In a very silly hat. Ah. <laughs>
1: yes. yeah. That, I mean, that, that's exactly the hat you want to be in, in the Antarctic with, this big sort of 10-gallon cowboy hat. We see in this, this footage on the videotape that they use thermite basically to blast whatever this is out of the ice. And there is this little bit in, in Who Goes There where they talk about how they use thermite to thaw this object out of the ice. And they discover that it was made of magnesium alloy, because as they fire it up, the whole thing, given sufficient heat in contact with the air, burns up. I could never quite work out, reading that, why it didn't burn up on re-entry.
2: Because it came down very, very slowly. It was the world's slowest crash up until that point. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's probably more of a homage to The Thing From Another World, where you see them all stood in a circle, gradually outlining the shape of this thing underneath the ice. Because the original one looks more like a
1: missile. Exploring the area surrounding the Norwegian base, they find the site shown on the video. Deep within the crater lies the wreckage of the flying saucer we saw in the opening scene. From the surrounding ice, they determine that it has been there for about 100,000 years.
2: Back at the base, Blair's assistant, Fuchs, warns McCready that Blair believes the remains that they recovered may still be alive. These remains are currently stowed in a storeroom,
0: where they drip menacingly. Meanwhile, Blair drunkenly runs simulations on what appears to be a Commodore 64. They show the thing assimilating dog cells and replicating them in 8-bit perfection. Either that or he's playing Asteroids. I wasn't quite sure <laughs> they, which.
1: They, they, they did actually make that comment in the, uh, the director's commentary. Did they? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> apparently they even had an Asteroids machine on site. But they say that the graphics were apparently quite difficult to render because by early 80s standards, they actually needed to go out and find a really powerful computer just to create that.
2: Well, they had the powerful computer on site, just that they unfortunately had Kurt Russell playing chess
0: against it. <laughs> and he decided to pour whiskey into it. The computer, which seems to have some sort of artificial intelligence, (laughs) tells them that the organism could replace all life on Earth within 27,000 hours if it gets the opportunity. I like the fact that pointing out that he's drunk, because that hadn't really come across to me. He just
2: looked kind of, it looks like he's moping in front of the machine. I hadn't really picked up he was drunk. But the idea that actually he could all just be seeing that in his mind while playing Asteroid. That, yeah, I just, like that better. Yeah, it's like, actually, the whole thing, it wasn't going to take over the Earth. It probably yeah. wouldn't have got past Argentina if, if anything had happened. It just would have fizzled out. But no, world ends because one drunken man was playing a computer
1: game.
2: <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the storeroom, the remains wake up and start trying to devour Bennings. Windows, the radio operator, sees this and raises the alarm. By the time everyone returns to the storeroom, both the creature and Bennings have gone and cleaned up all the fucking blood (laughs) all over the floor down to the last drop in a matter of moments. Well, that
1: does actually make some kind of sense, because of the revelation about what all that material
2: is. And you see the running blood later and so on, The researchers track them outside where what appears to be Bennings is kneeling in the snow trying to hide his embarrassingly huge claw-like hands. If you had hands like his, you would also be trying to hide them. Once again, the flamethrower saves the day. The survivors are spooked as they now realise that any one of them could be the thing and that they've probably used a fuck ton of their fuel
1: burning this next <laughs> In about a surprisingly rational madness, Blair takes an axe to the helicopter and tracked vehicles as well as killing the remaining dogs. The other researchers confront him as he smashes up the communications room. Blair holds him off with a revolver, but eventually MacReady subdues him and locks him up in an outbuilding.
0: As tensions rise, Dr Copper proposes a blood serum test to determine who is human and who isn't. This comes to naught when the researchers discover that someone has destroyed all the stored blood. Only Gary and Copper had access to the blood locker, so both are restrained, while all the remaining researchers squabble over who should lead them. McCready eventually comes out on top. I do find it amusing. They were about
2: to give command over to one of the things.
1: Yeah, who, <laughs> who actually refused it. Yeah. yeah. This whole blood serum test, I'm, it's sort of a throwaway thing in this. Obviously, it, it doesn't go anywhere. But this becomes a really big part of who goes there, the story. <laughs> Who goes there is much more of a science fiction story than a horror story? It's not, I think, actually a very good story. I mean, it's got some great ideas in it and great atmosphere. But so much of it is given over to technical details. So they spend ages talking about wind conditions in the Antarctic. And then I mean, it's something like four or five pages where they're discussing how they're going to do this blood serum test, how it works and so on. And, and in the end, it doesn't really do anything.
2: Not to mention terrible dialogue. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of references to birds, which I think got into Thing From Another World, where the journalist keeps saying, holy
1: cat, all the time. <laughs> so. With Blair still locked up, Fuchs tries to continue his research. Before he can make much progress, however, the thing cuts the power to the camp and kills Fuchs. Not long after, MacReady discovers Fuchs's burnt remains outside, uh, possibly with him having immolated himself to avoid assimilation.
0: While examining the remains, McCready notices that the light is on in his shack, despite his having turned it off earlier, and heads over with Knowles to investigate. Soon after, Knowles returns alone to the camp, telling the others that he cut the
2: guide rope and left McCready out in the growing snowstorm. While investigating the shack, Knowles had found some shredded clothing marked with McCready's name tag, suggesting that he had been attacked by
1: The Thing. McCready breaks into the base via a storeroom and holds the others at bay with a flamethrower and a bundle of dynamite. I mean, he is so a Call of Cthulhu investigator. <laughs> During the ensuing standoff, Norris collapses, apparently suffering a heart attack.
0: The crew drag Norris onto an operating table, and Dr. Copper attempts to stabilise him with a defibrillator. As he slams the paddles onto Norris's chest, it opens up wide turning into the gaping moor, which bites off the doctor's arms. Copper collapses, dying as the creature grows horrific new appendages. MacReady opens up on the creature with his flamethrower.
1: The making of documentary and the commentary are fantastic when it goes into the details of this. So, for example, the bit where Doc Copper gets his hands bit off. The way they did it was they found someone who had lost both of his forearms in an industrial accident and basically made up these prosthetic arms that were made out of gelatin and and tubes of blood and, and wax bones and stuff like that. And they made a face mask to make him look like the actor who was playing Doc Copper. And so, when the, the moor slams shut on his arms and, and rips them off, this is ripping off these prosthetic arms, and then the guy lurches backwards with blood spewing and bits of ragged flesh and so on, and it's, it's just amazing. <laughs> Engulfed in flame, the creature writhes and
2: transforms further. Norris's head stretches off the body, grows crab-like legs, and tries to scuttle away in the chaos. Palmer and Windows notices it just in time, with probably one of the most quotable lines in the film of... You've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> and McCready immolates it. Again, because Fire Solves everything
1: the way they shot this as well apparently it was an absolute clusterfuck the first time they shot it because all that goop that you see inside the neck was made of uh things like melted plastic and they used a lot of solvents to do that and so when they stretched it all out in the first place and um you know ripped the skin of the the neck all these solvents came out and the fire bar that they were using underneath the camera in order to make it look like it was all on fire actually set it on fire and the whole set went up and fireball this final
0: aspect of the transformation gives mccready an idea each part of the creature seems to function as a separate organism he deduces that blood drawn from an infected person will attempt to preserve itself if threatened with a hot needle mccready proposes that he tie everyone up and test them clark appears to agree but then attacks mccready who shoots him in the head to be fair he had it coming he was coming
2: at him with a scalpel McCready starts by testing himself, then works through the now-restrained researchers. Each time he plunges the hot wire into a blood sample, it simply hisses with steam. An early test proves that Clark was in fact human.
0: And Clark was human, huh? Which makes you a murderer, don't it? Palmer now. But
2: when McCready reaches Palmer's sample, however, the blood screams and tries to crawl out of the Petri dish. I love the fact that when looking back over knowing what's about to happen, you look at Palmer's reaction. He's just got that expression on his face that you could caption with, right, so I'm going to have to turn into a monster now,
1: aren't I? <laughs> and turn into a monster he does. I mean, it's probably actually the weakest special effects in the film, but the monster he turns into is sort of this bloody bubbling mass. His face sort of swells up with balloons and blood trickles out. and, and um, It looks fairly grotesque, but not as alien as everything else. It's a gug. <laughs> Then that happens, his head splits open and reveals these all these teeth and so on, and that's that's much cooler. McCready, obviously, you know, being very flamethrower happy, tries to burn him as soon as this starts happening. But his flamethrower sputters out. That's what happens when you roll double zero. So this, this huge grotesque maw clamps down on Windows's head and crushes it.
0: McCready's flamethrower finally fires up and he engulfs Palmer in flames. The flaming form breaks through a wall, and out into the snow where it burns to death. While this happens, McCready burns Windows' corpse, which has started to transform. Although it burns to death, but with a helpful addition of a stick of dynamite.
2: Because not only is it burning, he decides to throw explosives on it as well. Yep,
1: that's true, and apparently Kurt Russell came very close to injuring himself there because he wasn't expecting it to go off quite as violently as it did.
2: (laughs) It was pretty close. Yeah. (laughs) Once the chaos calms down, McCready tests the remaining researchers. Much to his surprise, all of them proved to be human. Gary expresses some colourful displeasure at his treatment, saying he doesn't wish to spend the rest of winter tied to that fucking
1: couch. <laughs> the delivery of that line is just gorgeous. <laughs> McCready then gathers a posse to go and test Blair. When they get to the shack, however, they find him missing. They notice the floorboards are loose, prize them up, and discover a tunnel containing a mostly built spaceship, cobbled together with bits of equipment scavenged from around the camp. This suggests to the researchers that all may not be well with Blair
2: There's a little hint earlier when they go to see him after they've been looking for one of the others that's gone outside They open the window yes. and then see that he's got a noose already hung up in his cabin And when looking back at it one of the commentators on I think it's a YouTube video said You could probably pin that as the moment when you know that he's the thing because he's already set the rope up and he was going to use it, and then he's been transformed, and now he's, oh, I'm all right, now I can come back inside and try to assimilate. I mean, I'm fine now, I can come (laughs) come back inside.
0: (laughs) Fearing the catastrophe that would result, should the Blair thing escape, the surviving researchers decide to cleanse everything with fire and blow up the camp. If they can burn the thing in the process, they reason, this would prevent it from freezing itself into another thingsicle and infecting some future rescue party.
2: This is another favourite part of the film for me, when the generator's been killed and they realise no-one's getting out of here alive. Let's light this place up a little.
1: When setting Dynamite down in the tunnels, Gary stumbles across Blair, who consumes Gary's face using one of his hands. By the time MacReady catches up with the thing, it is in the process of transforming into a stop-motion nightmare of tentacles and maws. Yeah, this scene was apparently extremely abbreviated. They had a much longer sequence that involved lots more stop motion. I mean, you can see little bits of it from the tentacles that are thrashing around the ground, and Carpenter decided not to use it. And if you look at those those few seconds that remained, I mean, you can understand why. It's not badly done, but it's very obviously stop motion, and yeah. it looks completely different than all the other special effects in the film.
2: Oh, God, yeah. It's kind of almost comical how it grabs the plunger yes. and then takes it away, So No, no blowing up for you. <laughs> In fact, yes, as I said, the creature snatches the detonator before MacReady can blow them all to chunks of barbecued spam. Desperate, MacReady lights a stick of dynamite and tosses it at the creature, passing his throw roll.
0: Everything goes boom! Somehow, MacReady survives the chain of explosions and staggers out into the burning ruins of the camp. There he finds Childs, who says that he had gone hunting for Blair, but had got lost in a snowstorm.
1: Charles, in turn, does not trust that MacReady is still human... The two of them share a bottle of whiskey, discussing the hopelessness of their situation and waiting to freeze to death. We end with Macready and Charles eyeing each other suspiciously, agreeing to wait and see what happens next.
2: And they all lived happily ever after.
1: What what do we make of that ending? Amazing! No, I think it's a bit lame.
0: I think if I were one of them and I wasn't the thing, I would want us both to be burnt to death. Because basically... If one of them isn't infected, then they're failing totally because they' they're letting the other one live.
1: Yeah, I, I do kind of agree with that. I mean I, I like it tonally. I like the 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 emotional aspect of that ending, but I agree from a from a logistical point of view, it doesn't quite make sense the way that you do. That doesn't mean that you know that that isn't what happened immediately after the the film ends. but that note that they left it on, it doesn't quite click.
2: I was, I was kind of convinced that both of them were still human, because Childs had run out while Blair was still effectively in the basement area in the generator room. So he couldn't have been outside to assimilate Childs as well at the same time. There go, Childs is still human, and McCready being human as he managed to escape without being blown up.
1: Well, there is a fan theory that Childs is infected, because you can see McCready's breath every time he speaks. You can't see Childs' breath at any stage. <laughs>
2: may have to do partly with the environment in which they filmed, oh, yeah. the, in, filmed the scene. They filmed it in height of summer while it was ridiculously hot, so they were all complaining about them sweating, basically sweating their nuts off while they were in all these big, heavy-weather jackets outside.
1: Oh, so that may have been one of the external shots that they actually shot in British Columbia.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, all of, all, most of it was filmed up there. But again, yeah. I think filmed in height of summer when it
1: was still rather warm. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, the, the the stuff that they shot on the soundstage in Universal Studios, that was all during the heart ah, of summer. Right. But then mm. they went out to British Columbia and shot during winter uh, for all the external shots of the camp. They also uh, shot a, a bunch of stuff in Juneau, Alaska, all the stuff with the, uh, the helicopters going back. Yeah, over the force.
2: glacier and so on. Yeah.
1: yeah. Going back to what we were saying about the video game and, you know, the canon ending there, uh-huh. Carpenter did say that because they established in the video game that both Charles and McCready were still human, then, you know, as far as he's concerned, that is the canon ending of the film. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Bennings, go get Charles.
2: What, what is this? What's, What's going on? on? The hey, Palmer, what is it? I don't it? know. Charles! Mac wants the flamethrower. Mac wants the what? That's what he said, now move!
0: Now let's have a look at what we can take from the thing for our gaming. You're making a shitload of isolation checks if this was an Unknown Armies game.
1: Yeah, I mean, the use of isolation in this is, is near perfect. It is not only a remote base, but it's a remote base on a largely unpopulated continent that is surrounded by ice, that there's so much bad weather that is incredibly isolating. And and a couple of throwaway comments, they've lost all communications with the outside world because the storms are interfering with their radio signals. So yeah, they are completely cut off.
0: Do you think it would totally break all credibility of the setting and the, the premise of it if all the characters weren't men because <laughs> what is the deal with that you got about a cast of about 10 and they're all blokes
1: yeah yeah it's... i think at
0: least in the old the thing from another world film with the giant carrot i think it had some women in the cast yeah, it as of recall it yeah it just seems kind of bizarre it's coming after alien and very much kind of emulating it and yet it totally doesn't have any women in the cast
1: yeah, I it's it's interesting. I um, Carpenter does actually address this in both the um, the making of documentary and the the commentary. I, I'm not saying he gives a good explanation, but he he says that it had been a long time since he'd seen a film with an all male cast. That with the setup of it, he thought it kind of made sense, and he just wanted to see how the dynamic worked. What a bunch of arse! <laughs>
2: <laughs> they they do at least have a female lead in the uh, the second thing, right? The prequel thing.
1: But I think the the setup of the ensemble cast there, the dynamic between all these characters, is actually a fairly good one for an RPG. Carpenter got a lot of the actors to come up with their own characters' backstories and decide how their characters interacted with each other. And you know, even though you know these things weren't spelt out during the script, it then informed their performances and their body language and their way of speaking to each other. It almost seemed like a bit of a LARP in that respect.
2: I love how Palmer evidently was the PC who'd watched the A team beforehand and decided to base his character off Howlin' Mad Murdoch. <laughs> That, that's just the, the complete vibe I get from him, is this kind of stone of crazy loon of, why the hell are you out here at a research station in Antarctica?
1: But actually, thinking about the backgrounds part, another interesting aspect of the thing, which I guess you don't see too often in films, is the fact that they really don't try to spell out the characters' backgrounds or, or give you any information about them. I mean, everything you learn about the characters, you learn by observing them in action.
2: Yeah, there is no background. It's just what yeah. they're doing in the here and now is what matters.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not really about the characters, is it? No, it isn't. But at the same time, I, you see the characters develop or you learn about them through their actions. So there, there is that character aspect of it. There's just no exposition about it.
2: I don't know that there is one single line I can think of, which is where Gary turns around to McCready and says, but that was Bennings. I've known him for ten years. He's my friend. Yeah. But that, that's it. That's the only partial bit of backstory you get
1: i we very much i think when we're we're running games we tend to put a lot of backstory into the characters or whether we're players or whether we're creating pre-gens and so on and i, th- I think this is a good example of how you know stuff like that could actually de- develop dynamically during play when it comes to
0: running the thing as a monster in call of cthulhu i'm a bit unclear on what rules it actually follows mm. does it infect people by biting them by attacking them and then directly infecting them if it infects people that easily and like at the end when macready does the blood test why doesn't the blood in the tray you know run up his arm Mm. and and attack him you know if it's like a sentient creature of its own in that little tray so there was a lot of instances where i thought well if this was a monster in call of cthulhu i'm not quite sure how it's supposed to be working i kind of viewed
2: it more a bit like a shoggoth especially with some of the early shots especially in the dog kennel where it starts opening eyes randomly and then growing limbs as it required them that you could base it partially off that. I mean, definitely not totally, but definitely use that as a basis of inspiration. But
1: but in terms of the way that it functions as an infection, yeah. Because we see in the computer simulation that it only, you know, it, it works on an almost cellular basis, that it goes around and it assimilates, you know, cells and duplicates them.
0: Is infecting the right word? Because it, does it eat you and then reform a version of you? Yeah.
1: That, that does seem to be what happens in the film. I mean, it, it is a bit ambiguous.
2: They do tend to cover that a bit more in the t- in the 2011 one, yeah. where they cut one of their captured things open and find the person that it had devoured being copied, because they find, hang on a minute, this guy's got uh, bits of metal implant outside of him, implying that the original has already been devoured and now it's making the copy inside itself. They all then
1: spurt out afterwards. But on the other hand, in Who Goes There, there is much more the idea that it works as an infection. No, I, I I tend to side much more with what you just said, and I think it sort of fits the, the parameters of the story quite well. It also makes the log- the logistics work a bit better as well. It makes it possible to have tension in it, because otherwise you get this thing that it wakes up in the camp, little cells of it go out and infect everyone, bang, done, mm. you know, film over. And then you have Alien Covenant.
0: And it strikes me that the game would work pretty well as a role-playing game mashup with Werewolf of Miller's Hollow-style play, Yeah, where some of the people are infected and they perhaps know who else is infected but the other people don't know who's infected and there's no real way of finding out unless you can do you know you can come up with some kind of test as they did in the film and I think that paranoia could work very effectively
1: Yeah, and there's a hint at some stage in the film as well that perhaps um, someone who's infected or been duplicated might on some level not even know that they have been. Because, I mean, you've got that thing with... Is it Norris who at some stage is offered the chance to Mm -hmm. take over running the camp and turns it down even though he is infected at that stage? And someone else postulates in passing that I might be infected and not know it. I'm thinking in a game... You you could almost flip that round. i mean, just for a one shot. I mean, it would be end up being fairly farcical. But you could actually have one where everyone's been infected. No one actually realizes it. Everyone's being suspicious of everyone else, and you know doesn't actually realize that you know it's, it's all over anyway.
2: Because another thing they don't really use from the uh, from the book is that it's telepathic because they yes. were all having dreams around it and that's how they were postulating. Well, it can copy someone cell by cell, but it wouldn't have their personality. But if it could read their mind in the process, mm. then it could. If it copied the thing wholesale, it's, well, it's um Orwell's doublethink kind of concept, where it's you kind of almost convince yourself of the lie.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, if you add that telepathic aspect in there, that sort of does explain why it's got to assimilate people while they're alive. Mm-hmm. Because you know, it, otherwise, you know, why why wouldn't it just kill people and absorb the dead bodies? I mean, surely that would be less risky. Yep,
0: and also confirms how Fuchs was so successful by immolating himself. Mm. So. Mm. I think perhaps the primary way that this works as a game is that it's so very isolated, and yet if they fail to stop the threat they know it's going to infect everybody else unless they can take it out so there's a aspect not just of self-preservation and indeed towards the end it's not about self preservation there's an aspect of pure heroism in that you're trying to stop this thing destroying the world exactly the same as in alien i would go back and make that mm. comparison again it's got so many aspects in parallel with alien down to the flamethrowers The mix of quirky characters, the isolated base stroke spaceship, the use of domestic pets, cats and dogs. You know, at the end, there's a kind of a paranoia. Is the thing still with me or isn't it? It seems like Carpenter saw that and thought, can I do a, a, well, a I, I, different say, version of this
1: well you say that except most of those elements actually come from who goes there so it almost becomes a question of whether dan o'bannon you know was influenced by who goes there when he, he wrote alien well perhaps so yeah Another aspect of which could be explored in very different ways is the fact that, you know, this is obviously a highly intelligent creature. And it's played very much as, as a monster in this, that it goes out, it devours people, it changes and so on. But at the same time, it's intelligent enough to go off and uh, start building a spaceship out of, you know, spare parts that are lying around. So this is smart, it's technologically advanced. But it, it struck me that. I I don't know. If I were in a game and there were a creature like this, would there be any possibility of of communication with it? Is it automatically just going to be, you know, a monster bash, you know, us versus it, you know, or is there any chance for more subtle interactions? I'm not saying, you know, sort of sit down and and have a, a big conversation about, oh, can we all not get along? If you were to try to do a game that was inspired by this i mean how how much do you sort of shake it up change it and you know stop it from just being a a rehash of the thing
0: i think by using different settings rubbing the serial numbers off it's probably enough really like we say there's quite a few things that use this kind of premise an isolated place there's some kind of infection that's going to get you all I like the added layer that, you know, if you don't stop it, it's going to go on to infect other people. It can survive after you die. So I I think there's quite a lot of scope for bolting on your own threat and location and mix of characters and
1: period. I did think about setting it on a desert island or something like that because the isolation is a big part of it. But with the twist, I mean you know, if you got, you know, a crew that ends up ditching on this island, and this creature has already been there for some time, hasn't been frozen to the ice. I mean if it's already assimilated everything on the island, you know, and and is basically presenting as an entire ecosystem, what might that be like?
2: I'd probably go for an angle that combined a one part thing and one part the crazies so that you have a nice rural isolated location, say somewhere where there isn't another town for miles and miles and miles, and it's been identified that something is going down, and then you have that quarantine that takes over, adding further barriers between you and the outside world, but then those barriers start to crumble, they start to become infected, escalation starts to increase, etc., and gradually turning it into just a bigger shitstorm than it already was.
0: I kind of like the idea of setting it on an aeroplane, on a transatlantic flight or oh, something yeah. like that, so you're you're all sealed in. If somebody takes it upon themselves to sabotage it and crash the plane, then you know it's the ending for everybody. Or maybe on a train, things on a plane,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that, you know, crashing it would be the end for everyone, but there's no guarantee that the whole plane would go up in a fireball, so the thing might escape. So yeah, it would be that... the
2: end
0: for the PCs.
2: Right? Oh yeah, yeah. Not, not unless it turns into Airport 77. You have the plane underneath the um, underneath the ocean, lying on the seabed. Then they're still stuck, and it's just. The ocean above them, rather than the whole (laughs) (laughs) blister of air.
1: Oh, God, yes. And how would we see... I mean, obviously, this is a Call of Cthulhu podcast. How would we see the thing in Lovecraftian terms? What, in terms of game terms? Yeah. In in terms of how we'd we'd make it fit with Call of Cthulhu.
0: Well, it fits in with Call of Cthulhu fine. I mean, it's a weird entity with tentacles and mouths and morphing shapes parallel to a Shoggoth or... Mm um so on so i think as far as a lovecraftian entity goes it fits the bill nicely yeah it's a nice piece of
2: this could be another elder thing a genetic experiment that's gone wrong and it's finally been let out the box
0: and it's something that fell from the stars which again kind of works for a lovecraftian thing
1: yeah i mean it's it's worth remembering that who goes there was published what about five years or so after uh, the mountains of madness Mm -hmm. and and so yeah, it's it's not unlikely that john w campbell was inspired by lovecraft I I don't know if he ever acknowledged that, but there, there certainly seems to be a strong Lovecraftian influence there. on social
0: media well we've had some feedback about our recent episode on the joys of failure wouldn't it be more appropriate yeah. if people failed to comment
1: <laughs> we'll oh, get to that think. in a moment
0: <laughs> there was a fantastically detailed and thoughtful post from uncaring cosmos on g about how failure relates to the osr he says failure is to be celebrated and glorified not minimized and managed and failure is everywhere. Not just failure of the characters, but failure of the narrative to correspond to genre beats. The heroes are essentially all Baldrick from Blackadder. Narratively, anticlimactic failures are baked in by design, and are to be cherished. A bunch of stinking peasants go down into a dungeon, fall into a pit trap in the first room, fail their climb rolls to get out, their torches burn out, and they die of exhaustion and starvation in the dark. T.P.K. Roll up new characters. Quite appropriate that was on G+, really. (laughs) That sounds like the kind of D&D game I'd run.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Karen Cosmos. Did write quite a long post about this, and I think, if I remember correctly, he did actually write a blog post building on this on his own blog. I'll try to find the link to that and put it in our show notes, because it's well worth reading.
2: Also over on G+. Daniel Carroll says, With most skills, someone will know whether they're competent or not. So if someone with a low climb skill tries to climb a glacier, I think it's fair that they should suffer the consequences. I mean, I would never climb a mountain in real life, and if one day I decide just to give it a go, it's more than likely I would die. Daniel, do not go rock climbing.
1: <laughs> well, that's, that's an interesting one because I, psychologically people do tend to very much overestimate their competence in everything. Have you ever met anyone who actually admits to n- not even being a bad driver, but being an average driver? Everyone thinks they're above average.
2: I think their last line was, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's this whole thing is greatly misused appropriately enough, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect, whereby the less you know about something, the more likely you are to believe that you know more about it because you don't know what you don't know. There is at least an element of that to a lot of these things, whereby you know someone you know might be perfectly willing to pick up a gun and try to shoot a monster in a bad situation, you know, just assuming that they'll be able to hit it. And also on G Frank Delventhal asked. Why didn't you fuck up that episode? Well, I think it's very gracious of you to assume that we didn't, Frank,
2: so thank you. (laughs) Editing, it's a wonderful thing.
1: (laughs) I really want to be critical, but again you force me to admit that I constantly like your show. i failed to find something bad. Even your singing gets better, or am I just permanently insane? Yes, (laughs) Yes, does <laughs> anyone answer to that, Frank. Yes.
0: <laughs> as if we needed more evidence, Frank. I think you are yes. handing it to us. Oh, dear. I recently saw Frank's video of him blowing up a hot water bottle. If you didn't see that, you should check it out.
1: Okay, we'll, we'll link to that from the show notes as well. So, yeah. I... <laughs> There's no explosives well, in that. Well, I don't mean with there. dynamite. <laughs> no, no. So, so, with all due respect, Frank, you might not be the best judge of this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and talking of failure... As you've said, Matt, G Plus is closing down.
1: Yeah, it's not closing down imminently. At the time of recording, there's the best part of ten months until it all goes flat. It's due to close down now, I think, in August of 2019. Yeah, but
2: the exodus has begun.
1: Yeah, so we we are exploring other platforms. We'll make an announcement at some point, but there's no immediate hurry. I mean, G Plus isn't going anywhere f- in the short term, uh, so we'll carry on using that until we're forced not to.
0: With us leaving G+, are we going to get a deal on how we leave G+, or are oh we just going to crash out of G+. It's, it's going to got... be a hard exit from G+. Is it? Yes. I don't know. Yeah. And is it actually going to ever actually happen? Is it really going to shut down? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not convinced. Will I of think the people, just...
1: Will of the people. Well or will of Google, at least.
0: Let's just wait and see. They say nine months, ten months. Who knows? Next week.
1: <laughs> if you want to get in contact with us... The easiest way of doing so is going to BlasphemousTomes.com, where we have links to all our social media presences. But you can find us on Twitter at GoodFriendsOfJE. Uh, You can find us on Google+. Plus. We've got a community there. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. And there is a contact form on the website. Now I'll show you what I already know.
0: cracker shit and wrap up what are our overall thoughts about the thing it's great it's one of my favorite films it's great yeah it's good i agree i agree i mean i remember seeing it in the mid 80s i didn't see it when it came out but i saw it a few years later on a a tiny tv set in my student flat i was blown away with the, the special effects i was just like this is absolutely incredible now i look at it and i kind of think no, it's pretty good, but you know, in, in much the same way I felt when I saw Terminator 2 at the cinema, I just could not believe what I was seeing. That was the few years between the two films well, 10 years was the dawn of CGI, really.
1: Yeah, I think the effects in the thing have aged a lot better. Then films that came out a few years later that started to use early CGI, because the effects are all practical, with the exception of that ill-conceived bit of stop motion. On the whole, I think mean, there's a couple of bits of sculpture which don't look particularly convincing, but I think on the whole they did an awful lot to turn those practical effects into something really visceral by careful lighting and by slathering everything with you know, liquid Twinkie or whatever it was and mm. and everything else doinkie yeah it's to me those special effects really still stand up
0: yeah i mean that head that sprouts spider legs and runs away i was just like what the
1: fuck yeah i mean that was just amazing
0: i would have loved to have gone to see it in the cinema
2: but it's one year older than i am
1: (laughs) yes i i did see it at the cinema and and uh yeah it was a hell of an experience on the big screen And it also occurs to me we have not actually mentioned the most important or the most interesting aspect of the thing. We did. We talked about the vampire carrot in passing. Oh, no, no, no. Much better than that, which is the stunt coordinator for the (laughs) thing.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh... Yeah,
1: the stunt coordinator being the marvellously named Dick Warlock. What better credit can you have than that?
0: I'm going to use that for a PC name, definitely. (laughs) He's got to be a wizard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but what kind of wizard? Oh, well, obviously he has his own wand.
0: Oh, yeah, go blatantly.
1: <laughs> what would his
0: porn star name be? I mean, <laughs> with a name like that. He, he That's d- it, really. He doesn't need a different No, one, just, yeah?
1: Yeah, spin it around. Warlock dick.
0: Magical penis. <laughs> mm. Okay, well, I guess that wraps it up for the thing and for us today. So it's a goodbye from me.
1: Cheerio from whoever I am now.
0: And farewell from... Who again?
1: hello blasphemous tomes
0: you gotta be fucking kidding